I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Textbooks have a lousy reputation. They're too expensive, always out of date, and a pain to schlep around. Replacing them with something better and cheaper has been a dream of educators and technologists for decades. And some believe this dream is about to become reality, thanks to the rise of new digital resources that educators can use free of charge. Are so-called open educational resources poised to disrupt the market for textbooks and other educational materials in the U.S.? And should the federal government be helping them do so? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael McShane, Director of Education Policy at the Show Me Institute in Missouri, and author of a deep dive into the brave new world of open educational resources in the latest issue of the journal. Mike, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Oh, look, thanks for having me. This was a really fun article to write, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Well, and there's a lot in the article that I want to get to, but let's start with the basics. What exactly is an open educational resource? You know, it's funny. I imagine you were going to ask me that question, and I realize how much you have to use sometimes the word open education or resource to answer it. But essentially, you know, an open educational resource is something that teachers, a, a bit of content, a lesson, a unit, that teachers can share, use, and build upon for free. So it's usually licensed under some kind of creative commons copyright provision uh, that allows for replication for educational purposes at no cost. So when I'm preparing a lecture here at Harvard and I bring up Google Images and do a search for an image that I might want to use on a slide, I guess I'm using an open educational resource, or at least if I'm the image that I use ends up being something I'm allowed to use, uh, that would be the case. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it kind of runs the gamut from something as simple as, I think, exactly what you're thinking of. Think of a, a photograph from, you know, a political event or something that happened recently. You know, if a newspaper or a book wanted to use it, they might have to pay the photographer or the wire service for it. But depending on the license that's there, some in most cases, uh, educators are able to use that for free. But, you know, it goes all the way up to, you know, Engage NY, which was an entire curriculum that was made available uh, for open resources. So teachers were able, the state of New York put it together, and teachers are able to use it, modify it, um, all at no cost to them. This was an entire K-12 curriculum in English language arts and math aligned to the Common Core standards that the state of New York developed for its teachers and potentially others to use? Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's kind of the most fully articulated form. And there's everything in between. You know, in the in the piece, I talk a bit about, you know, better lesson and share my lesson. These are kind of lesson repositories. So if we think of on one end of the spectrum is the, the picture, the video of the speech, um, the map as the most kind of basic piece of openly licensed content. And at the other end of the spectrum would be a fully articulated curriculum. The big kind of messy middle is a lot of stuff, individual lessons that a teacher might create and then make available for other teachers to use online. Uh, slightly more extended might be a unit on a particular topic that, again, is put online, is made available for other educators to use uh, and expand upon and, and change at, at no cost to them. So the content is free to use in an open educational resource, so that's part of the idea, but it's obviously not free to produce. So just 
who's doing the producing of these yes. resources. Yes, and therein lies the rub. You know, one of the central tensions of this open resources movement that as I was doing the research for this piece continued to kind of circle back around is that the production of content is not free. So, you know, a lot of people mention things like Wikipedia or others, these kind of crowdsourced um, re- repositories of knowledge, um, which is true. You know, people don't get paid to, you know, make Wikipedia articles. But creating a lesson or a unit about a particular topic is a lot more in-depth than that. The, 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 the best example I can give to people is imagine trying to teach a class with just the Wikipedia. Like you're teaching a class on, you know, Lewis and Clark's expedition, but you only have the Wikipedia page. Yeah, not going to get you very far. It turns out you actually have to go a lot deeper, and there's questions of sequencing and organization that's a lot deeper. So different organizations answer this in different ways. So I know Better Lesson, which is one of those repositories, I think has about 16,000 lessons that are on its platform, and they actually pay for those lessons from a group of what they call master teachers that create the content. So the people get paid to create the content, but then it's free for people to use. I know Engage NY, you know, content producers were paid, I think, in the neighborhood of 36 or $37 million to actually create it, uh, and then that is made available for, for people to use. But this is essential, as we sort of think about this, and, and, and as you sort of said in the lead-in, as we think about if open resources are to replace textbooks or at least eat substantially in the marketplace for textbooks, this is one of those questions we have to wrestle with, which is, you know, content, quality content particularly, is labor-intensive. It's difficult to produce. It's time-consuming and it's expensive, and people expect to be remunerated for it. And in many areas, it's time-consuming not just to produce, but to, say, maintain and update, right? I mean, in the area of history, I think we're constantly concerned that our textbooks haven't reflected recent developments or new understandings. Who's going to continue to do the ongoing maintenance that's needed to uh, make sure that materials are up-to-date when teachers go to look for them online? Yeah, you're exactly right. So maintaining, updating fact-checking, organizing. You know, there's lots of these sort of mediating ancillary institutions that need to exist. So even let's just say that the content exists out there and is high quality and is up-to-date and is entirely accurate. You know, I think in the piece, there are some, some folks are saying there's as much as a billion pieces of educational content out somewhere on the Internet. So for teachers and, and, and administrators and others, I mean, that's like drinking from a fire hose. So it's not just on the content side, but it's through the sifting through all that, the searching through all that, separating the wheat from the chaff um, and understanding what you can actually use in your classroom. And this is really the function that textbook companies have played, right? They do the job of trying to organize educational resources into something that's coherent, and we may not be entirely satisfied with how they perform that function, but at least they do a, a good chunk of the work. You're exactly right. And, you know, obviously, you know, textbook companies are much maligned. And I have to be honest, in doing the research and writing this piece, I gained a newfound respect for what textbook companies do. I remember, you know, when I was a teacher, when I was a college student, whatever, always lamenting textbooks and how much they cost and how much, you know, you felt sort of wedded to what they had to do. But they perform a really important function. And that is, about sequencing all of this information, about checking to make sure that it's all correct, um, about 
putting together appropriate supplementary resources. I mean, trying to create a textbook from scratch or a lesson from scratch or a unit from scratch or entire curriculum from scratch is a monumental undertaking. And and I think there there is a bit, look, I, I am not completely sort of skeptical of this open resources movement, but the more I dug into it, the more these questions start to pop up that it's going to have to wrestle with as it moves forward. Now, one of the things that I learned for the first time from your article is that the federal government is not ignoring this development, but rather has actually emerged as a leading cheerleader for uh, encourager of the proliferation of open educational resources. And you raise some interesting questions about the role that it's playing. So tell us a bit about the federal government's Go Open initiative. Yeah, so this is a a kind of three-part initiative on the part of the federal government to try and promote the use of open educational resources. So the first piece of this is the creation of something called the Learning Registry, which is essentially kind of like a big repository slash search engine for open uh, education content. So, you know, in the piece I talk about, you know, I went on there and put on my cap. I used to be ninth and 10th grade English teacher, so I looked for lessons on Romeo and Juliet and um, was kind of overwhelmed by the content that was on there. So that's the first piece is creating this learning registry where they're collecting a lot of open education resources and developing searching techniques to help people find it uh, better. The second piece of it is um, a kind of convening, supporting, sharing of best practices between districts and states that want to go open. So right now, I think there's something like 40 school districts that have signed on uh, there are 30 that are classified as quote-unquote launch districts, so they're in, I think, the initial phases of trying to move at least one of the courses that they offer into the realm of making it openly available for all of the teachers in the district to use. There's another group of nine or ten that have, are a little bit more advanced in the process, and they're trying to share what they're doing. So that's essentially the, the federal government using its ability to convene people, to spread information between them, to try and promote that kind of ground-level work. And then the third bit of it, which is actually, I think, become part the most controversial, which I, you wouldn't have necessarily thought of this at first, was a proposed rule. And uh, it was a rule that the Department of Education, a new regulation that would require all copyrightable intellectual property created with uh, competitive grants from the Department of Education to have open licenses. Uh, which, again, when I first heard that, it's like, well, that seems to make a lot of sense. You know, I'm a taxpayer. If I'm paying for this research and stuff comes out of it, I think we should have the access to it. But actually a group of some really heavy hitter education researchers, I mean, names that we're probably all familiar with, Angela Duckworth, Carol Dweck, and others, pushed back on this in this big joint letter. And what are their concerns? Because the this is not unusual for the federal government when it funds research, for example, to require that journals make the results of that research available free of charge. And I imagine folks at the Department of Education are saying, look, this is a direct parallel here. We want to make sure that the work that taxpayers are funding is uh, not used for private gain, but rather is available through an open copyright. Yeah. And, you know, actually, it cuts to kind of the fundamental issue of why 
you know, the movement for open educational resources started in the first place. You know, Lawrence Lessig and the Creative Commons, you know, made this argument that copyright has become too restrictive and that the, what is defined as, quote unquote, derivative works. So that is stuff that is developed after, kind of based on originally copyrighted material, uh, had become too restrictive. And I should be the first to say, you know, there are whole courses on copyright law. I am not a lawyer. Wading into the weeds of that is challenging. But the long and the short of it, essentially, is that I think a lot of these researchers are worried that um, some of the work that they do around and supplementing their grant-funded research will be considered as derivatives of that research and therefore also have to be open, uh, open access. And so what I mean by that is if you imagine a researcher, let's, let's say, that's doing work on you know, grit or growth mindset, if we're thinking of, of Dweck and, and Duckworth, if they create supplementary resources, so teacher professional development, classroom exercises, based on the research that was grant-funded, I think they're worried that there are some questions of like, well, does, it, does that have to be made openly available? Are we able to actually um, use, a, uh, are we able to copyright that and, and profit off of it? So I think there's just a lot of questions about what of that work would count as derivative, what would count as original, and what would have to be made open and what could still be, could, could still be sold. Yeah, and I'd say not just profit off of it, I guess, but also to uh, generate revenues to support ongoing research and dissemination where they would control exactly. the use of the product in a way that they might not be able to if it was uh, under an open license. No, and that's exactly right. And also, you know, I think they raised a very legitimate concern, which is also to say, hey, look, you know, if all of the stuff that's sort of made open of this, if anybody can run with it, you know, this work can have the veneer of being quote-unquote research-based or based on federal grants, but they have no control over how people choose to use it at that point. I mean, part of copyright allows you to kind of control how people use what you do. So there could be all sorts of stuff that comes out there saying that it's research-based uh, but, but wasn't, in fact. So, so there's a quality control aspect uh, that's part of it, too, which was, was a kind of fascinating discussion that they're all a part of right now. So let's pull back and talk a bit about money. Uh, just how big is the market that this open educational resources movement is looking to disrupt or effectively replace? You know, it's it's tough to say. You know, there have been competing estimates. It seemed the best number that I could get, which is back in, I think, 2014, so that the total um, kind of print resources market is about $10 billion, $10.4 billion. Digital content and curriculums, about $1.8 billion at the district, or four point eight at the school or teacher level. So the total thing we're talking about is probably around $17 billion per year in, in sort of educational resources, either in print or online. So it's a, it's a huge market that we're talking about here. Well, I think it's, it sounds big, but then you have to remind yourself that we spend more than $600 billion on K-12 education overall. Yeah, so, I, think, I think a little bit south of 3% of everything that we spend on education. So one of the things that I take away from that is that uh, actually this is not a huge ticket item for schools and districts in the grand scheme of things, and that we should actually be quite concerned about developments that would compromise the quality of the resources available to educators uh, simply to try and make them available cheaper. Is that a, a, a yeah, reasonable no, conclusion? No, I think that's absolutely fair, for sure. So I'm going to put you on the spot here to close out the interview. Um, where are we headed in this space? Uh, where do you expect to see the open educational resources movement uh, being in a, a decade, uh, two decades from now? Will textbook companies have become obsolete? 
No. Uh, look, if I'm a betting man, which I occasionally am, you know, I would put my money on more and more of the kind of educational content um, showing up in sort of Creative Commons license or being openly resourced. So there'll be a lot more lessons that are available. There'll be more con- videos and audio and all of that sort of stuff that'll, that'll be out there. And I think we're only going to see more of that develop. Where I see almost like, I don't know if you want to call it a pivot, but I could definitely see a change in sort of how textbook companies or, or other providers become much more focused on the sort of sequencing, the supplementary materials and others. So the content may be out there, but the real value add that the textbook company will have will be around organization, vetting, um, sort of all of this sifting function that they do. So I see it as more of a pivot for the textbook industry, not a wholesale uh, replacement of them. And I guess the real test for those organizations will be how successfully they can make that pivot, and that's what their shareholders should be paying attention to. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you for your time today. I hope we can have you back, and I guess I gave you a decade or two to uh, figure out how your projections look. For sure. Thank you. A lot of runway. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the Ednex podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners, and more listeners find us. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org. <laughs>